Today on The Grave Talks, Ed and Lorraine Warren's Legacy. Ed and Lorraine Warren were pioneers in the world of paranormal research and demonology. Their research helped many families find peace and answers when others assumed they were losing their minds. Ed and Lorraine Warren have investigated countless cases, including many that are now horror icons, including the Amityville Horror, The Conjuring, and the Enfield Poltergeist. Ed and Lorraine Warren's grandson, Christopher Edward McKinnell, now continues the legacy of his grandparents as head of the Warren Legacy Foundation for Paranormal Research. Today, we learn about what it was like growing up with Ed and Lorraine Warren as grandparents and what it was like learning the field firsthand from these paranormal trailblazers as we talk with their grandson, Christopher Edward McKinnell, on The Grave Talks. Well, my very first memory was being at my great-grandmother's, my my grandmother's mother's house, Mm -hmm. and I was supposed to spend the night there and I was afraid of the of ghosts and it was my grandmother who told me there was no such thing as ghosts (laughs) so i think at that point i was already starting to grasp that something odd was going on uh and i was only three or four but i i really truly understood when i was about four years old my sister was only three at the time uh and a little friend of hers locked me in the museum that was when I had my first true exposure to what my grandfather and grandmother were all about. When they, you got locked in the museum, and I totally get it. Kids playing. I got locked in a basement, but it didn't have a bunch of possessed objects in it. <laughs> they were, they just, yeah. play, they just played yeah. thriller for me over and over and scared me. I can't imagine being locked in in the museum. Were you aware of what the museum was at that moment in time, or was it just kind of like, well, that's their collection of stuff down the way? Oh, no, no. By that point, I, I, I knew what I was dealing with. I, I could, I, re, I remember my pure sense of terror. Okay. I knew what that stuff was and that I couldn't touch it and that it was evil. Mm-hmm. What, what happened when you got locked in that museum? Well, happily, my grandfather was in his office and I didn't know it. Uh, and he came running out and rescued me. Yeah. So, Gramps, by the way, never Grandpa. Just Gramps? That, Gramps. I, I love how every grandparent has a slightly different way of what they like to be referred to. I still don't know what I'm going to go by someday, but... <laughs> yeah, well, he, he um, you know, World War II, uh, a true, like, John Wayne was his hero. Mm-hmm. That was not somebody you could call Grandpa. Sure. He was Gramps. Okay. <laughs> and of course, for our listeners who are joining us, we're talking about your grandparents who are Ed and Lorraine Warren, which we, of course, mentioned in the intro of the show. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's got to be interesting. And so so you have this family that, <clears throat> that you know, w- were you aware at the time of, of just how, uh, you know, how in-depth their investigations had become, how, how you know, well-known, how big the investigations they were involved in? in uh, at that point in time no because i was born in 64 they didn't actually um start doing the big stuff like amityville until mm-hmm. 73 okay okay so you know, so i think annabelle came around in 71 72 mm-hmm. so so you were you had kind of a, a front row seat for as they went out to these these hauntings and investigations 
and mm-hmm. came back home. And, and you know, what, what was that like? What were some of the experiences? And we can get into greater detail, but just from a more of a, of a, of a wider perspective, what was it like as, you know, you go over to grandma and grandpa's house and, well, they just got back from Amityville. They just got back from, uh, from Enfield, you know, what, you know, it, 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 that had to be an interesting Sunday dinner or whenever you had dinner with them, what that was like. It, it didn't come up very much, mostly no. because, um, and this probably is not going to come as a surprise to anybody. I was terrified of the stuff as a child. Sure. I, I could not sleep without a light on. I had night terrors. I, I was always hearing things. Uh, turned out I really actually was hearing things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And uh, so it wasn't something that I really got into until I was 16 and my grandfather decided it was time for me to get involved. And he brought me on my first case and it was one of these unbelievably over-the-top poltergeist cases, pounding noises that shook the walls, growling, clawing. This was just as we're walking in. You know, most of the furniture had to be removed because it was flying around. Uh, there was still a, um, some beds upstairs, a recliner and a couch downstairs. And um, as we're going around the house, you know, the crucifix is upside down. The pull down stairs to the attic were pulled down. These were stairs that had come flying down and hit the woman in the house, knocking her out one night after a demon had walked into the bedroom picked up her rosary beads and spun them in front of her as if to say, you think these are going to save you? And my grandfather had me sit upstairs in that master bedroom in the dark for an hour, listening to things on my own and told me, let him know if anything changed. After I dealt with that, uh, we went downstairs. We did some religious provocation to try to figure out what we were actually dealing with. Uh, Around three o'clock in the morning, two hulking black shapes came down the stairs. Um, The woman screamed that her face was on fire. And when we looked, we could see uh, claw marks appearing on her face. A pot that had Holy Church incense picked up out of the kitchen, flew around the corner, came straight at my head, and just veered off, hit the window behind me. The shade flew up. Um, The woman screaming she wants to get out. We're on the radio. On the on the telephone, do, during all of this, with Brian Dow, WTIC, out of Hartford, mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, and um, so I'm trying to help this woman because I'm I'm thinking, all right, well, I can help her get out of the house. I'm ready to go. Uh, the lights are flying on and off, and as I get to the front door, it's now locked, and it wasn't. It hadn't been. I mean. The recliner I had just been in flipped over. The door opened on its own, and she and I got out. After that night, I've never been afraid of anything ever again. (laughs) So you you literally went from, I'm afraid of ghosts, I don't really like this, to Grandpa saying, "Um, hey, let's go uh, do this together. It'll be a fun (laughs) bonding experience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, were you hesitant at first to go along? Did you have a choice of going along? What was that like? Oh, yeah, it was, I definitely had a choice. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and at the time, I was 16 years old. And I was kind of excited about it. Okay. Kind of the, you know, I was going with the great Ed Warren. 
Yeah. I figured I, I'll be safe. You, you got to a point of more curiosity, I'm assuming, than, than I guess probably fear. Well, the night before, I was still with my light on in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but the night after, no. And, I, yeah. I, I've got no, I love the dark now. So when you went into this case, can you can you say which case this was, or was it more of a private one? Well, you know, actually, it's not a famous case, okay. and it, I, I've never understood why it isn't, but it was up in Lee, Massachusetts. Okay. Long, interesting case, actually, but... Yeah. Yeah. You know. How did that, uh, that... Since we're talking about that one specifically, and I'd like to talk about, obviously, several, but how did that one begin? How did that, that call into your, your grandfather and grandmother begin? Okay. Well, the husband and wife, they had two children, and he worked overnight in the local mill. So he was a third shift worker, and she was alone. She had, according to my grandfather, this all happened, and I personally would not agree with this. Um, He felt it was because she had uh, converted to Christianity from Judaism. That just never seemed right to me. Um, But one night, she's in her bed, and a little boy ghost walks in and says, where do all the lonely people go? And she didn't know what to make of that. She called in the local priest. He did a, a, a blessing of the house, and the spirit disappeared but it was replaced by this dark entity and that's when things all hell broke loose uh, oh I forgot to mention uh, they had done um, some kind of either seance or something with the Ouija board uh, to contact this uh, boy ghost mm-hmm. it said that it was um, the uncle of the, the husband in this case and that he had been pushed out of a a horse carriage by his twin brother and was killed under the wheels of the carriage. So there was some attachment immediately to this poor ghost. See, unfortunately, and I'm sure your listeners have heard this before, uh, demonic entities will often appear as children. Mm -hmm. The reason they do that is you then become caring of them you you want to bond with them and you you voluntarily create an attachment sure it's it's creating that trust factor and exactly and, who and opening a door and, and who wouldn't help a, an innocent child who's coming and asking about where do all, all the people go or, or the lost people go i mean that that's of course you want to help um, of course and that's then, what the annabelle entity did yeah exact same thing and, and I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, th- they would get quite a few letters. Obviously, we're talking a time before email and before <laughs> Twitter and before everything else. People calling, writing in and saying, hey, I, I have uh, something going on here. Can you help me? How did how did they go about at the time when, when they were actively out there investigating uh, and helping folks? How did they determine, you know, uh, which ones they could allot their time to? Because obviously there's only so much time to, to allot to, to going into these cases. It was a whole different world back then, honestly. I, mean, I used to go uh, on lecture tours with them, and that's where they really got most of their um, cases from, was when they were doing their lectures. Mm-hmm. 
you know, people would see them, they would hear about them, they'd come there and they'd tell them what was going on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and my grandmother, being easily one of the very best psychics I've ever seen in my life, and I mean, I have an actual support group with hundreds of them, and nobody compares to my grandmother. I, I've seen her stand out front of a house uh, with a, we were there for a TV show called PM Magazine. And there was also a local reporter with us. And he had notes on this house that he showed me. He hadn't written up the story yet. And as he's showing me all these notes about what had taken place in the house, my grandmother's listing them off from standing in front of the house. I'm like, holy crap. I didn't know my grandmother was Professor X. (laughs) Wow. I was truly floored. Yeah, so she was always very good at that. And my grandfather, you know, he was a demonologist. Yeah. He could tell if you were full of crap or not. Sure. Or if it was psychological. You know, and yeah, most of the time it's psychological. How did they initially begin doing this? How did they they get into the world of investigating paranormal activity? That that has to be an interesting story right there. Well, my grandfather grew up in a haunted house. Okay. And his parents didn't believe it was haunted, but he would see this old lady in the house, if I remember correctly. Uh, And it scared the crap out of him, but it also fascinated him. And as for my grandmother, um, she blossomed psychically at a very young age so even as a teenager she was having visions Uh, as a matter of fact um, the night she met my grandfather um, he'd been a uh, uh, an usher at a movie theater they must have been only 16 years old and he invited them out for a, a coke her and her girlfriends after the movie and of course, my grandmother ordered a milkshake, which cost three times as much. Um, but as he was breaking away from them at the end of the night to go home, and he was walking across the street, she saw an older man in his place, and she knew that she was going to be spending the rest of her life with him. Wow! How did she? Co- and did she communicate a year that later, to him? They were married. Wow! At seventeen, because he first joined the Marines at 16, got kicked out. This was World War II. Sure. Got kicked out when he they found out how young he was. Uh, and at 17, he joined the Navy. So it just, right from the beginning, they they had that connection. Yep. And as soon as they got out of, uh, as soon as he returned from the war, uh, they went to art school together. Mm-hmm. And they would read about these hauntings. And they would go to the house, and my grandfather would send my grandmother up to the front door, because she was the charming one. And um, she would say, we're artists, we'd love to paint your house. And the people in the home would be, oh, dear, please, come in. Yes, of course. And then my grandmother would get to check out the house. <laughs> you know, I, it's, a, it's a little white lie, but to, to get in to, to do some investigating, how did she transition then into, we love your house, here's your beautiful portrait, by the way, it's haunted as hell. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, I didn't ever <laughs> ask that question. Uh, but, you know, their, their portraits, a lot of them, uh, ended up being of hauntings. Okay. And they would show the ghosts in the hauntings. 
And that's actually how they started doing lectures. Somebody had seen these and said, you know, you ought to give a talk on these paintings. And that's how they got their start. Interesting. When they went out and investigated uh, a haunting, what what was their ultimate goal when, when going to a location that had something going on at it? Well, when they were young, it was all about them understanding. Okay. Because they had been exposed to it. They had no idea what they were dealing with, and they wanted to understand it themselves. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, their compassion and knowledge uh, grew, and they started helping people instead. And it became about that, not about, you know, the thrill. Mm -hmm. It's one thing I, I would like to caution listeners about. You know, you see these uh, TV shows and people running around stirring up trouble and everything. Never believe anything you see on television. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot produce a haunting on a production schedule. And you certainly can't handle one on a weekly schedule. I mean, don't get me wrong. I handle tons of cases on a weekly schedule. But those are not cases that you go into, stir up trouble, and then walk away from. You know, those are much simpler things. Sure. But we unfortunately are inundated nowadays in the media with this idea that the supernatural is something you can just do as a a source of fun, like it's tourism. Mm -hmm. It's deadly. We're dealing with things we don't truly understand. And half of my caseload ends up being people who thought they were researchers who've gotten in trouble and created attachments and brought things home. And now they need to get rid of it because what yeah, was a fun, and they don't have a clue how to do it. Yeah, what was a fun pastime turned out to be something a lot more serious than they were aware of. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I I always warn people about that. It's not something I can I condone. It. I certainly don't allow it with the uh, Warren Legacy Foundation. Mm-hmm. If we're not in there to help a living soul, then we shouldn't be there at all. Sure. And, and that, that's important. There's a lot out there. And obviously people are bombarded with there's a paranormal group. Now there's multiple paranormal groups almost in every single city. Um, oh, yeah. And, and it can get very convoluted very quickly as far as what's out there. That, that is one of the most common things. Having done our show now for more than five years uh, on our other podcast, Real Ghost Stories Online, uh, we've probably gone through... 20, 30,000 stories, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a good majority of them uh, have have the aspect of we had something we couldn't explain going on, and then we called the local paranormal investigator, and it got worse. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, well... Happens all the time. Yep. Like, what was their experience exactly in this other than curiosity? Um, and everyone, of course, has to start somewhere, but it's just a matter of, you know, what are the tactics that they're using as they're trying to start? Right, and as I as I already shared with you, I mean, my grandparents were just as guilty yeah. of it as anybody. Sure, you know, they didn't know what they were doing at first. Yeah, you know, but things are different nowadays. We mm-hmm. we've grown yeah. in this field, and there are ways to learn without stirring up trouble for the victims. Yeah, luckily for for all the folks who are out there today, there were the trailblazers like your grandparents out there who who did. You know, there wasn't TV shows for them to watch. <laughs> and, exactly. and and go, oh, exactly. well, this maybe I should handle it this way. They, they they had to kind of learn it on their own. 
Exactly. I want to I talk about some of the specific cases, and I'd love to talk about some of the areas uh, in these cases that, that maybe the public isn't so aware of or doesn't get talked about very much. Um, and, and I'll let you, you know, go into those areas. Um, the first one, of course, I want to talk about, because it's one of the things that I would say as a child intrigued me the most. Um, I remember sitting... Uh, on the porch on a summer afternoon and I've always been interested in ghosts wanted to be a ghostbuster as a child and went into broadcasting and did commercial radio forever and thought hey it'd be great to play radio station in my house again someday which I do now <laughs> and it's just I talk about ghosts so um but I would sit there and I would uh, read the Amityville horror um on, on summer break probably read it multiple times over and that's where I first you know learned about an extreme haunting um, and and the investigation that went into it. Uh, where were you at the time of the Amityville Horror? Let's start there. I was nine years old. Okay. So I had nothing at all to do with sure. it. Sure, yeah. So did, did Grandma and Grandpa ever say, hey, look at, you know, this is what happened uh, over the weekend when we were helping out? No. Okay. No, not, no. I didn't learn about it until they started lecturing on it. Okay. Uh, they You know, they came to my local high school, did a lecture. Sure. I was about 15. <clears throat> But that was uh, when I started to first get exposed to the stories. Okay. Now, obviously, this is a case that has been dramatized through multiple movies. Um, you have, yeah. you know, and probably it's one of the lightning rods. I mean, speaking from a distance here, and you can tell me what you think. Uh, it's probably a lightning rod, I would say, for what I've seen, just people to to criticize um, and to say, well, this or that, this is true, this is not true. You know, people who really have never been there are not involved with the case, but to criticize either uh, the, the Lutz family or the work of your grandparents uh, or anyone remotely involved with the case, um, you know, to, to try and, and cast doubt on it. What, what would you say is, is one of the biggest misconceptions about the Amityville Horror? And then I want to talk more about what went on there. Well, I would say that it, they say that it was all about the money, mm -hmm. and yet the Lux has never made a penny. Sure. You know, they left everything behind. They left coin collections, gun collections, and they, they never took it, never went back for it. They were afraid to take anything out of that home. Mm -hmm. They lost everything, and they didn't make any money off of books or movies or anything to do with the case. So there was there was nothing to do with money. Uh, and as for my grandparents, I remember hearing this story that they had sat around having wine or something, and they came up with this story, uh, which is ridiculous. They were invited in by Channel 5 mm -hmm. to check out the house after the Lutzes left the home. Sure. You know, that was a very real case. But the, I think the biggest misconception, people s say, well, has anybody else lived there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure others have. <laughs> yes. A and they haven't had any problem. Well, why not? It's because the underlying vulnerabilities are not there in those people. You know, you have to look at these cases in a holistic fashion. There's far more going on there than just the supernatural. There's whatever it is that makes you personally open to the phenomena. You know, I have never worked a negative haunting that didn't have a psychological aspect. And I've worked thousands of cases. You know, whether it just be anxiety or something far um, 
more involved that needs to be taken care of. If you don't deal with the underlying problems that make the family vulnerable, then things are not going to go away. And I think that that's something to keep in mind. The people in the Lutzes, for instance, they had a lot of issues when they moved in that house. And they were under a tremendous amount of pressure. They really overextended themselves to get into there. And that left them open. You know, um, George, he was a, he was a biker. He was a, he was a tough man. You know, and his, his wife, uh, Kathy, she had had a hard life. So there was a lot going on in that house or going on in that family before they ever entered. They created a perfect storm. And the DeFeo's the same thing. The, the history of that family that was there before the Lutzes <laughs> and Ronnie murdering the uh, As we're recording this, literally, our connection just went out as we're talking about the Amityville horror. I'm going to dial Chris back right now. Um, this is an interesting phenomena that seems to happen with this case, and it just happened to us here on the show. Hello? Lost our connection there. Yeah, where were we? <laughs> uh, you were talking about uh, Ronnie, uh, and, and I just want to point out something. I never have, I, I don't think I've lost connection ever in, in on this program doing interviews. The only other time I've ever had difficulty with ever communicating with someone was back when George was alive. And, and we were trying to get our interview lined up, and he passed when we were in the process of getting that lined up. Um, it's interesting. <laughs> oh, I, I have stories. There, here's, for instance, <clears throat> my grandparents, <clears throat> during the Amityville Horror, mm-hmm. they were driving through um, Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, there are tons of little towns, uh, Paradise and Bethlehem and Lord's Valley. And I, my grandfather had noticed probably 10 of them in a row. And he said, wow not even the Amityville Horror could give us trouble here. And just as he said that, something slammed into the back of their big car that it was called the ghost because the license plate said the ghost. Yeah. Or said ghost. And slammed them, knocked them off the road, and the car went into a ditch on the highway. (laughs) Uh, A truck that was about a half mile back pulled up and said that he had seen the accident and there was nothing there. It's it's an odd thing when talking about that case uh, and talking with anyone who is connected with it. Uh, weird things happen, um, mm-hmm. and and I think we just might have had one of those weird things happen as we were discussing. Yeah. Um, let's continue on where we left off. Um, you were just talking. Uh, we were talking about it. You were uh, making a point about uh, Ronnie uh, and and about the family as well. Yeah, Ronnie's family. Uh, his father was rather abusive yeah. very abusive and the v- level of violence in that home the level of animosity in that home was huge long before anything got their hooks into ronnie um you know back in the day this was the time when the supernatural was just becoming fascinating to the general public and i believe that ronnie opened up some doors mm-hmm. you know with with both his anger 
and his fascination with the occult. Sure. Just a lot of negativity there and, and opening those yeah. doors and then allowing that, obviously, you know, that, that feeding. What what do you make of of the explanation that he was, you know, basically possessed when he killed his family? Do you think that that is true or, or is it some variation of that? Oppression, probably, okay. not possession. Okay. So there was something, you know, working its will upon him, but... I never heard of any evidence that he was actually possessed. Okay. When obviously uh, they they moved out, um, uh, or uh, after the family had died, they didn't necessarily moved out. They had no choice; they were gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's an odd way of saying it. They moved out. Um, uh, did and, they? Know? Yeah, exactly. Um, the 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 possessions, um, you know, that that uh, George and Kathy uh, when they had gone into the home. Um, from what I understood, many of the the, the possessions from uh, from the family that, that had been murdered um, were basically sold with the house. Is that correct? And many of the items George and Kathy ended up using. I don't know. I didn't know that. That that's something that I know George had talked about in an Art Bell interview. Uh, you know, many many years ago. Um, and I thought, well, that, I believe it then. I thought that was very. I, I, I met George. He, he was a, he was a very honest man. Yeah. Very interesting, you know, man, and and you know, from from when he was alive, and and I know he didn't give many interviews. I know he started to give a little bit of speaking towards the end, um, and, and very compelling speeches. Um, he seemed very honest, very straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. Today, um, we the children now obviously are, are speaking out uh, a bit about the the the. The haunting, uh, you want to call it that, um, you know, or, or whatever you want to call it. It seems like it, it's a new level, like it should have a different word <laughs> than than haunting because it, it, it seems so extreme. Um, and now there's some fingers from some of the children being pointed at at George and, and, and what he was involved in. Uh, I know transcendental meditation has been brought up and, and some other things, too. What have you have you heard about those accusations? I know uh, my Amityville horror was a documentary. Um, and I know there's been some speaking that's going on about this. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I hadn't I hadn't looked into it. I'm okay. too busy with the cases that I deal with on a daily basis. Sure. Um, I did know that my Envyville Horror had come out. Mm-hmm. I did see the um, the preview for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Transcendental meditation. I personally am a believer mm-hmm. in. I think it's a good thing. Okay. But if you're in the wrong mind frame. Yeah, of course you can open doors to something else. Yeah. But that's true with an awful lot of different things that deal with opening you up. And I really caution people to be wary. Sure. You know, Reiki can do that to you if, if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all about you It's and your intentions. Sure. It's the same thing when it comes to... Um, for instance, a Ouija board. Mm-hmm. You know, ten thousand people can use a Ouija board and never have anything happen. But then there's that one person, yeah, and they're just somebody who's open to it, and they're going to get hurt. And it, sadly, no matter how many times I warn people, it seems like it intrigues them to actually want to try and use it. Mm-hmm. And it's just foolish. You're playing Russian roulette. And who in their right mind wants to do that? Yeah. 
I would almost guess the same folks who would go online and decide it's a great idea to buy what some would call a haunted doll or something of oh, that nature, which has become a thing. You know, I mean, who would have ever thought this will be a thing? You know, which of course can lead us over to um, uh, some talk of of Annabelle. That wraps up part one of our interview with Christopher Edward McKinnell, grandson of Ed and Lorraine Warren. In part two of our interview, we'll discuss what caused a bed to fly off the ground and shatter against a wall on one investigation that Chris was a part of. How well has Hollywood portrayed Ed and Lorraine Warren and their work? How do the Warrens Occult Museum actually keep demonic forces at bay within its walls. How's Lorraine Warren doing today in 2019 in retirement? And has there ever been a fear that the dark or demonic entity may prevail in its mission of death when on an investigation with Christopher Edward McKinnell? That and more in part two of our interview. If you'd like to hear it, support our program, become a gravekeeper. Go to patreon.com slash the grave talks. You'll have access to part two of this interview and all of our interview episodes, as well as access to advanced episodes of this program months before they go public. It's how we keep this program on the air. Go to patreon.com slash the grave talks or go to our website, thegravetalks.com and click become a gravekeeper. Until next time for The Grave Talks, I'm Tony Bruschi. Thanks for listening.